0: Please join me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and that you would enlighten your word and reveal to us uh, through these words that we're getting ready to study this morning, just how magnificent and how mighty the Lord God is. That through the centuries, he has guided mankind to saving grace and that, Lord, even today, that saving grace is available to us. We are grateful for this. And so speak to us now and allow us to worship you all the more. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. My friend Steve Bateman sent me a text yesterday morning. He said, I wanna be praying for you tomorrow. Steve Bateman, by the way, is the pastor at First Bible Decatur. He says, I wanna be uh, praying for you tomorrow. What text are you preaching from? I said, Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 32. And he said, that's a lot of fathers in response. (laughs) And it is a lot of fathers. I've always been pleasantly surprised when we arrive at a certain point in the book of the Bible and it fits a particular occasion for the day and once again this has occurred our text this morning is perfect for a father's day now this doesn't always happen a few years ago when we were going through the book of proverbs we had just gotten to the adulterous woman in proverbs 7 Uh, and i and i knew not to preach that text on mother's day so we just skipped on ahead to proverbs 31 but every now and then the lord blesses us with the appropriate set of verses for a special occasion at just the right moment It is providential. In fact, it happens so often that I'm tempted to name a church after it. But now knowing that this is going to be a sermon for fathers, I want to make sure that our dads know this is not going to be an attack on them. We have two guys in the congregation that repeatedly remind me, why do the women always get praised on Mother's Day and the men get berated on Father's Day? Well, I won't say who they are, but their names have the initials J and B, and they are related and they do favor one another, but I will not reveal their names to you. But sadly, they are right. I have been on the receiving end of one of those types of sermons. The preacher is all too happy to bring up what men are doing wrong, and we feel about this big when we exit. I promise that is not my purpose this morning, but I won't guarantee that You will not be challenged this morning by the word of God. In fact, I hope every one of us is challenged to heed the applications of this text today. It is glorious and wonderful, and it should grant us great confidence in the Lord. So to that end, I want to take us all the way to the end of chapter 11 this morning, and then just touch a little on the first three verses of chapter 12. I almost entitled this sermon Quick Books because verses 10 through 26 are one complete book or section in Genesis. They make up book five, which narrows down the line of Shem. And it is quick because the narrator wants to get us quickly through it in order to get us to the next book, which covers the line of Terah, whose descendant Abram will be a key figure in the rest of Genesis. So I'd like to approach this text this morning under three headings. The line of Shem's sons in verses 10 through 26. Then the line of Abram and his brothers in verses 27 through 32. And then I want to conclude by just making a few observations for us to apply to our own present situation. So very quickly, that's Shem's descendants, Abram and his brothers, and the applications. So let's delve into the line of Shem starting here at verse 10. Now, when we look at this genealogy, it's a little hard to know if it's meant to be specifically literal or not. It could very well be that a few generations were skipped. And there are two reasons for presuming this. First, in another example, the genealogy of Jesus skips a few generations in Matthew chapter 1, verse 8. That's not considered a mistake as that information is recorded elsewhere in Scripture and could be easily checked. The word used for begat or fathered, even here in the Hebrew, can also mean generated or ancestored. And Matthew constructed his genealogy as a mnemonic device that proves that Jesus is a descendant of the key figures of David and Abraham. That's not considered an error when that's done. And the second reason I say this is that there are 10 generations listed in this passage between Shem and Abraham. 10 is the number of completion. There are also 10 generations from Adam to Noah preceding the flood, as there are 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. So our narrator may have something more symbolic in mind than just a plain genealogy. Perhaps, but I can't say for sure. Remember, seven is the sacred number in Hebrew literature. So it's curious that Enoch, who walked with God, is the seventh generation from Adam and Abraham will be the seventh generation from Eber. That would seem to indicate more than just a coincidence here. So the alignment of these generations may be here to indicate symbolism, or they could be taken as a literal succession. But as I said, when we looked at the genealogy of chapter 5, we would still be hard-pressed to come up with a figure of millions of years, even if we were to add a few extra generations. The great theologian B.B. Warfield was keen to point that out. But this genealogy might be representative of line. One could hardly conclude that millions of years was involved. And sadly, many have misinterpreted his comments that, that Warfield believed in an old earth. Fred Zaspel has recently proven that fallacy. So in my humble opinion, based on the literary evidence, I would still say that we're looking at a young earth again. Let me lovingly say, if you believe that the earth is billions of years old and and you can prove it from science or you have a particular way of interpreting the scripture in such a manner that you arrive at such a huge figure, I want you to know, I don't think you're the devil. I don't think you're less Christian than me. I just think you're wrong. I've studied the Bible seriously for over two decades now. I've heard most of the theories and the variations thereof. And I want you to know, I would even be open to change what I believe if I was led by the Holy Spirit through his scriptures to do so, just as we all should be. But from the sacred text of scripture alone, I've arrived at the conclusion that we have a young earth. Now, I know that's controversial for some, but I'm okay if you want to consider me wrong. I promise I'm all right with it. I just hope you wouldn't consider to me to be less orthodox just because we disagree. In fact, I think it's healthy to be part of a church that has minor disagreements on the lesser things. Now, hear me right, not the essential things such as the Trinity and the nature of the atonement and what we know scripture to explicitly teach, but on lesser matters such as eschatology and how often we should take the Lord's Supper or music styles, etc. This is how we learn from one another, and it proves that our unity is in the gospel, not in our preferences. So one of the things that that I want to point out is that, do you know what you call a group that believes everything exactly the same way? You call it a cult. We're not a cult here. We have some Christian liberty to to be at disagreement with one another, and we prove the gospel is that much better because we love each other despite our differences, right? Now, compared to the table of nations, back in chapter 10, verses 21 and 31, this is a bit of deep dive into the specific line of Shem. In chapter 10, verse 22, we read that Shem has five sons, at least five sons listed within the table of nations. A parkshad is one of those five sons, and it would appear in chapter 10, he's not necessarily the oldest. And moving on to chapter 11, verse 10, we see that for Shem, Noah's oldest son, a parkshad came into the world two years after the flood when Shem was 100 years old. We're also told that Shem lived an additional 500 years after a parkshad was born. So Shem lived a total of 600 years. His father, Noah, lived for 950 years. But unlike Noah, after each of the figures named in this chapter, we are told they all had other sons and daughters. So the narrator of book five is aware there were other descendants of of these people. But he is narrowing down on one specific line. And the next important figure uh, figure here is Shem's great-grandson, Eber. Now, I mentioned in our last sermon that Eber is where we get the name Hebrew from. The Jews are descendants of Eber. Eber has Peleg as a son, and the word Peleg means division. It refers to the Tower of Babel incident, when the Lord confused the language of the people so that humanity would spread across the earth. Another thing we should notice is that the curse of sin is beginning to affect the lifespans of the people living on the earth. They begin to decrease. While Noah lived 950 years, Shem lived 600. Eber dies at 433. His son Peleg lives a little more than half of that age at 239. And then Nahor doesn't even make it to 200. Also note that people start having children at an earlier age in their late 20s and early 30s. No one has a child after age 35 until we get to Terah. So this will make Abraham having a son at age 100 very remarkable. The last time that happened was 10 generations prior when Shem had a park shot. And one last note concerning these ages. If they are literal and accurate without skipping generations, then all of Abraham's ancestors would have been alive when he was born. Noah would have lived 58 years into Abraham's life. Shem would have outlived Abraham and Eber and would be living till Jacob was serving Laban. This is another reason why some scholars believe a generation or two might have been skipped. Why does God choose Abram when both Shem and Eber were alive unless they apostatized? And the last generation I want to point out is in in the fifth book is it seems uh, observation, sorry, it seems... The narrator's whole point is to get to the person of Abraham. It abruptly stops when we get to verse 26 with Terah's three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And then we have the beginning of the next book with the words, these are the generations of. And that is because all three of these men will play an important part in the role or important role in the life of Abram for the next 15 chapters. He's later called Abraham. So I may refer to him interchangeably from those two names from here on out. I get a little confused myself sometimes. So the whole reason we have book five is to get us from Shem to Abram. Now, as we enter into book six, it will begin with Terah and tells us details about his three sons. But the main character is Abram. He will be central to the story through chapter 25. But his two brothers, Haran and Nahor, will play important parts in this story as well. We're told in verse 26 that Terah had lived 70 years then he fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran. Now this is the first time in the genealogy that multiple descendants are listed in it. Now understanding that that word fathered may be generated, it could mean that all three sons were born before age 70 or that the three were triplets. I'm inclined to believe it's the former. We have such a tendency here to, to focus on the promised land of Israel. But we, we should note that Abram is not from there, but he was born in Ur of the Chaldees. This means that he would have been of what we presently call Persian descent. Most scholars believe that Ur is the ancient city of Urfa, which will later be known as the city as uh, Edessa under the Greeks. It's located on the border of Southern Turkey and Northern Syria. Archaeology tells us that it had a a rich culture during this period. They had mastered how to make exquisite pottery and had two-story baked brick buildings and had whitewashed them for aesthetics. So this is where Terah and his sons are from. They weren't from some backwood hicks. Abram's brothers, Haran, has three children, Lot, Milcah, and Iscah. Milcah will marry her uncle Nahor. Again, this was not unusual practice among the ancients, and I'll share a little bit more about them later, but Haran appears to have died young, and it would seem his son Lot will come into his uncle Abram's care. We'll have much to say about Lot as this story goes on, but he will also be a key figure in Abraham's story. We aren't told much at this point in the story about Nahor, uh, Abram's other brother, other than the fact that he marries his niece, Haran's daughter, Milcah. They're not mentioned as living, uh, leaving Ur with Terah. But we do know from Genesis chapter 24 v- verse 15 that they migrate to another area of Mesopotamia and found the city of Nahor in the region of Padon Aram. It will be from Nahor and Milcah's descendants that Abram will send his servant to find a wife for his only son Isaac. Abram refuses to let Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. Instead, Isaac will marry his second cousin, Rebekah, who was the granddaughter of Nahor. And it will be from this same family that Rebekah will send her son, Jacob, to find a wife from her brother, Laban. Therefore, we'll see that all these families of both brothers, Haran and Nahor, will play important roles in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's stories. And there's one other major character that we're introduced to, that of Abraham's wife, Sarai. Later, her name will be changed to Sarah. So I'll use both names interchangeably from here on out as well. Sarai's lineage is not mentioned here, but we learn from Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, that she is the daughter of Terah by another woman other than Abraham's mother. That makes her Abram's half-sister. And it's emphasized and foreshadowed here in chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarai is barren. Now, we've been introduced to all the major characters of the sixth book, save one. He shows up in chapter 12, verse 1. It is Yahweh whom Abram will take as his personal God. And whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, that stands for Yahweh, or in English, I am, God's covenantal name. And it is Yahweh who calls Abram to leave his land, his family, and his father's possessions to go to a land in which God will show him. And by obeying this, God will make Abram's name great, and he will be a blessing to all the peoples on the earth. Now, Lord willing, in the days ahead, we will look at this calling a little bit more in depth. But I bring this up today because Abram did not immediately obey this calling. It wasn't at Abram's insistence that he left Ur. It was his father, Terah's, doing. Perhaps Abram shared his calling with his dad and his father was intrigued, but it doesn't appear that way from the perspective of other inspired writers. It was Terah who led the remainder of his family towards the land of Canaan, but he didn't make it very far. He settles in an area which is now northern Syria and names the settlement after his son, Haran. And it is here that Terah died at the ripe old age of 205. But Abram did not make the initial move to Canaan as the Lord directed. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, made reference to this in his final sermon. In Acts chapter 7, he said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you were now living. So Abram does not obey at first, but notice that Stephen emphasized that God removed Abram from Haran to the promised land. This is all at the Lord's direction. Abram will eventually believe the Lord and obey him completely. But there's one last point that we need to make. Prior to God interceding and calling this man, both Abram and his entire extended family were thoroughly pagan. They were committed to and worshiped false gods. When Joshua finished the conquest, he gathered all the leaders of Israel and all the people, and they presented themselves before God. And in Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to them, thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods." He wanted the people to know that through Abraham, they were plucked out of the pagans. Both Ur and Haran were major cult centers for the moon god Sin, S-I-N. That's his name, literally, Sin. In fact, Terah is like Yerah, which is the Hebrew word for moon. In Akkadian, Milka and Sarai are transliterations for the names of the consorts of the moon god. The name of Rebekah's brother, Laban, means white, which was used as a metonym for the moon in poetry. All of this is to indicate Abraham's family is thoroughly pagan, and they would have remained so if the Lord God had not intervened. Now, in our last sermon from Genesis 10, we saw how people began to repopulate the earth after the flood as part of the creation mandate. And they had done a remarkable job of being fruitful. They had extended lives with which to commit themselves to this repopulation. And we saw how God confused the language to force the people to spread out over the earth, and this created hundreds of people groups. So at the time of Abram's calling, there were already numerous nations with whom God could have chosen. But he didn't. He chose one man, a pagan who was married to his barren half-sister who hesitates at God's initial call. This is the man God chooses in order to establish a people of his own possession. This is something only the Lord could do. Nehemiah recognized this in his prayer before the Jews when Jerusalem's wall was restored. He said, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. Abram becomes a central character in Genesis, but let us note that God is the main character. The Lord is always the hero of this story. So with our time remaining, I want to make five observations concerning these verses. Some of these might sound a little repetitive, and that's okay. When the Bible repeats the theme, it wants us to take notice of it. And the first one of these falls into that category. One observation is that sin still continues to flourish in humanity. It's like a cancer within us that just cannot be contained. I mean, think about this list for a moment. This is Shem's descendants, the one whom Noah said Yahweh would be his God. And if the ages are literal and Abram's ancestors had all been alive when he was born, then they would have been familiar with the horrors of the flood. It would have only been 292 years previous. The sheer devastation of what sin brought into the world and yet it still continues and flourishes to the point that they're all completely pagan, worshiping the created things rather than the creator. We must never, never underestimate the power of sin and what it's capable of doing in us. This genealogy teaches us number two that it would only take one generation to become the downfall for future families. One generation to become the downfall for future families. Now, who in this family in the line was it that led Shem's descendants astray? Joshua said it went at least as far back as Terah. I would imagine it was someone early on. And the rest of the generations become utterly corrupt. It makes you wonder how it happened, right? Did some tragedy occur that caused that ancestor to abandon hope and and just disbelieve Yahweh from that point on, that, that God didn't give him what he thought he deserved? Or was there some attractive sin that in order to pursue it, he was willing to throw away the worship of the one true God to have the one thing that he was being denied like the tree in the garden? it didn't take long for a single generation to change and it affect the rest down the line. But we can also see how one generation can change everything for the good. Abram, little old Abram, Chapter 12, verse 4, tells us Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He did not take his father's possessions. He was married to his half-sister. He had no children. All he knew was idol worship and rituals from his family. But Abram puts all that to the side and says by faith that he will trust Yahweh. He will follow the one true God. And in turn, that legacy falls to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Jacob's 12 sons, particularly Judah, whom it will fall on one of his future descendants, David, and then later, King Jesus. And now all the nations of the world have been blessed through King Jesus. One faithful generation can change the hope and the trajectory for an entire family. Brothers and sisters, if you're sitting here this morning, and you're just coming to understand and coming to know the Lord, you could be the change. You could be the catalyst that changes it all for your family from here on out. And this brings us to our topic for today. The genealogy emphasizes the role of fathers, of male leadership in the home. We spoke about this earlier when we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, that God gave Adam the privilege of stewarding his creation. And one of those privileges was caring for and protecting Eve. It was his role as the husband to do that. And later, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, the Apostle Paul says this was to emulate the role of Christ to his church. That is how husbands and fathers are to care for their families, like Christ loving the church. To be sure, we're we're never going to be perfect like Jesus. We men will fail and we will make mistakes. But nevertheless, that is the ideal to which we are to strive towards. Moses emphasized this role once again at the end of Deuteronomy just before the people crossed the Jordan into the promised land, he reads the law of God to him a second time and he concluded that these words in Deuteronomy 32, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father, And he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. The fathers were given the primary responsibility of instructing faith in the home. Now, I want to address the fathers, but before I do, I want to make sure that I'm not misheard by another group, the fatherless and those who do not have husbands, especially single mothers. I realize there might be some in our congregation who are sensitive to how I would address the men and that somehow I view these single moms as being less important or doing things out of order in some fashion. I assure you that is not the case at all. To our single ladies and our our single moms, I want you to know that I honor you, and I applaud and appreciate your desire to be faithful, as Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians 7, in the situation that the Lord has called you to. I know that many of you have been forced by circumstances outside your control to live in a less than ideal environment. And I am grateful for your faithfulness now. I also recognize I'm speaking to some here in the congregation that never knew their fathers or had abusive fathers. Some who might have even used religion in your home like a weapon to manipulate or control you. I am so sorry for your experience. I'm aware that sometimes those who were obligated to steward you well failed miserably and they hurt you. Some might even have some scars to this very day from such situations. But even so, I am called to teach the counsel from the Word of God. And in the Lord's economy, fathers and husbands play an important Christ-like role in the family. They are to be protectors who look after their families and to steward them as the Bible teaches. Therefore, fathers who do this well should be commended and encouraged. So, gentlemen, let me do so. First, let me remind you of the great privilege the Lord has given you. You are to be Christ like to your families, first and foremost. The Lord has placed them in your care. When they look to you, they don't need to see perfection. They don't need to see some rugged personification of strength like the Marlboro Cowboy. That's probably a little bit dating myself for some of (laughs) y'all. They don't need to see some great macho athlete. They need to see us take being a disciple of Christ seriously. They need to hear our prayers. They need to see us reading our Bibles. They need to hear us say often, I am sorry, both to God and to those whom we have offended. They need to see us broken and trusting in the Lord. They need to see that you care about them being involved and committed to the body of Christ, His church. And then they should see us serving them. They should see that our motivation in our jobs, our careers, is to serve the Lord and not the career. They need to see us sacrificing for our families just as Christ sacrificed for us. And they need to hear us say the words, I love you frequently. And they certainly need to hear us say, I forgive you just as frequently. If you are doing that, then you are being a good father and a husband. And that is a legacy that will far outlast skills in sports nice houses and new cars. But wives and children, know this, Satan and the system of our world want to destroy the concept of biblical fatherhood. It does not want your husband or your dad to exemplify these Christ-like traits, because if men did so, it would reveal a loving God, which in turn, which would lead them to a just God who holds their sin accountable. So right now, the world beats up men every day. It tells them, don't you dare take leadership. Don't be a protector. Let us have the way with your children. Don't champion the principles of Christ. Instead, be like everyone else. Be more effeminate. Be more indifferent. Blend in and don't rock the boat by bringing your Christ before us. So help our brothers, your sons, your fathers, your husbands. Don't view their God-given authority with suspicion all the time. Respect them. Encourage them. Tell them frequently, Honey, I see how the world wants to belittle what a man is, and I want you to know I want you to be a man, and I want you to stand up for Christ, especially in our home. Tell them, I love it when you pray. I love it when you serve at church. I I love it when I see you reading and I hear you reading the Scriptures in our home. Don't tell them where they're not measuring up. The world's already doing that. Tell them how you see them persevering They would love to know that you notice and that you care. But dads, give them reason to give you this encouragement. You are the ones to hold the line. You are the ones to lead in the home, not them. That means you must endure with or without their encouragement and persevere as the world attacks. Use today to pray and tell the Lord, I am insufficient for such things, but in my weakness you are strong. Because you are only one generation from your family turning against the Lord. Only one. And my last point is one that we've noted in the past. It's very easy to remember what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. He is the Lord God over all, He spoke, and the universe came into existence. He wiped sinful humanity off the earth with a cleansing flood. He can do whatever He pleases and to reveal attributes of Himself like His mercy, His grace, His sovereignty, He will establish a people of His own, one whom He will redeem with the precious blood of His only Son, Jesus, who will appear some 2,000 years after this and make restitution at the cross. And He will do so our great God will do so by calling a 75 year old former pagan who was married to his barren half sister. And from this family will come the Savior of the whole world. Because what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We do pray that in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our world, that you would help us to honor biblical fatherhood, biblical manhood, because Lord, this fatherhood is to emulate you. And Lord, we as dads, we want to demonstrate the grace and mercy that that you have instituted of yourself. We want to be models of that. We want to instill your holiness. So, Lord, to aid us. Lord, we pray for our fathers, for our future fathers, for our sons. We pray, Lord, that, that you would work in their hearts and their lives and that you would empower them. Grant them great faith to believe in your word and to act upon it, Lord. Help them to rise up to give glory and honor to you. And, Lord if they become men who follow you, then we know they are worthy of being followed as well. So Lord, allow us, allow us to see you in your great mercy of you as Father God. And in that, Lord, allow us to give you praise for it on this day. Because we know what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.